Hello, and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we continue with part two on the life and presidency of Herbert Hoover and pick up with his entering into the political arena. Again, we are joined by special guest Tom Schwartz, director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch, Iowa, and he and Jean Ann continue their conversation from the last time. Once again, Jeannie, take it away. Herbert Hoover, he gets into politics. He serves as the Secretary of Commerce for seven years under two presidents, and he's known for revolutionizing this department. What would you say were his greatest accomplishments as Secretary of Commerce? So um, one thing should be noted, and that all of Hu Herbert Hoover's service, both in humanitarian causes as Commissioner Relief in Belgium, the Food Administration, the American Relief Administration, the Children's Relief Administration, Secretary of Commerce, President, and then later Presidential Commissions. He served all of those without compensation, without a salary. He essentially lived off of his fortune from 1914 to his death in 1964 in, in all of his public service endeavors. He was offered, at, before he became Secretary of Commerce, Daniel Guggenheim, who headed the Guggenheim family fortune, which was also built on mining, offered Hoover to run the company, their mining operations, at an annual salary of 500000 a year. Oh, my and goodness. That, that was 1921. Yes. And he said, no, um, I've already accepted, you know, to be Secretary of Commerce. Now, Hoover had been offered either Secretary of the Interior, where he'd run the National Park System, which, you know, who wouldn't want to do that? Especially someone like Hoover, who loved fishing and loved the outdoors, as well as his wife. But instead, he picks commerce, which was kind of this sleepy little backwater of a department. But Hoover had this mind for big data. He loved collecting data and seeing its patterns and seeing the possibilities, the unrealized possibilities that the data was showing. And so what he did with the Commerce Department is he essentially turned it into this vacuum cleaner of collecting data of all sorts of things, and then figuring out how it could be used to make the average American's life better. So probably the biggest thing he did as Secretary of Commerce was to get industries to sit down and create industrial standards. We live by all of that today, but and it seems so intuitive, but it wasn't. There used to be 42 different size milk containers, and Hoover got the industry to get it down to the pint, quart, half gallon, gallon, the dozen eggs, the size brick in your home and school, the plumbing in your house. All of these things, it didn't matter what company you bought the product from, the brick from, for example, you knew that it would work with the bricks you already had. What standardization did is it made things much easier for the American consumer. They know that what they would have would work with what they already had. The other thing that Hoover did as Secretary of Commerce was develop aviation from being this kind of hobbyist sport of daredevils and carrying the U.S. mails, he knew that one day it would carry people. 
So he worked to help that industry move from mail to passengers. And part of that was also with the help of uh, the Guggenheims. Daniel Guggenheim created a fund of $2.5 million that Hoover could direct people. People would go to the Commerce Department and say, I have this, this idea for the improvement of aviation. Hoover could send them to the Guggenheim Foundation to submit a grant in order to help develop things. And one of, one of the biggest beneficiaries of the Guggenheim Foundation was Robert Goddard who is the father of modern rocketry. You know, we wouldn't have NASA today if without Goddard. And Goddard's experiments couldn't have taken place without the funds from the Guggenheim Foundation. So here was, again, this great kind of private-public partnership. The regulation of radio airwaves. Radio was kind of the new technology at that time, kind of the uh, Internet of today. And But the thing is, is that there were so many stations they were stepping on one another's signal. And Hoover stepped in to regulate the airwaves so that you know people had their own channels. They had to stay in their lane and they weren't uh, muddying up uh, one another's signals. The other thing that, that people are the great beneficiaries, beneficiaries of is highway safety. With Henry Ford's Model T, it provided average Americans with a reliable means of transportation. For one thing, Ford created the eight-hour workday, $5 a day. His employees had both disposable income and leisure time in order to use an automobile to get beyond the confines of their locale. They could also buy it with time payments. Hoover realized what was happening in America is that the American worker was having more money in their pocket with time payments, they could afford large purchases like a car or a washing machine. With a car, they could take take off and explore. What happened, though, is that with more people buying cars, there was no national highway safety standards. And so you had the early 20s, over 20,000 auto fatalities and not that many hard roads but it was because once you left your town, you didn't know what the rules of the road uh, were. And, and, and there was not even a standard in terms of what a red light versus a green light meant. And so Hoover created a number of highway safety commissions to look into the problem and essentially create those rules of the road in order to cut down highway fatalities. And then probably the one thing that many of your listeners know is the Hoover Dam. The Colorado River Commission was a contentious seventh state that we're fighting. Hoover steps in, takes it over, not only regulating the water rights. I mean, the Colorado River would overflood in the spring, destroying crops. So it needed to be controlled. And the Hoover Dam was part of that, plus with the hydroelectric power being generated also could provide power in that seven state region and regulate water use. Those are some kind of some of the highlights of, of uh, Hoover's years in commerce. Every president goes into office with a roadmap. You know, for Herbert Hoover, less than a year of coming into office, the stock market crashes. And of course, not the only cause of the Great Depression, but there we are in this what ends up becoming the greatest economic 
collapse in history. What were his greatest accomplishments as president? And, you know, did the Great Depression kind of thwart his roadmap of what he hoped to accomplish? So the simple answer was yes. (laughs) Uh, His greatest accomplishments, I mean, you're right. Everyone thinks of Hoover as the Depression president, if they know anything about Hoover. He passed criminal justice reform. Federal prisons were terribly overcrowded. And what Hoover does is he begins a construction program to reduce the crowding in federal prisons. He also sees prisons not only for punishment, but also for rehabilitation, because he knows that many of these people are going to eventually get released from prison and need to be put back out in society. He also realizes that juvenile offenders need to be treated differently than adult offenders. And so all of these things, again, common sense, but Hoover uh, actually addressed them. And perhaps what most of your listeners would know about Hoover, for the first time, uses the power of the federal government to go after organized crime, and specifically Al Capone, and is able to use federal departments to work together and eventually put Capone in jail for tax evasion. He expanded civil service, putting more federal employees under the protection of civil service rather than kind of the whims of patronage. He cleaned up the Bureau of Indian Affairs by appointing several Quakers. The Quakers had always been interested in uh, the better treatment of uh, Native Americans. He was able to provide flood control on the lower Mississippi. Uh, He was, again, headed the Red Cross relief efforts in the 1927 Mississippi flood. He expanded 16 national parks, added nine New ones added uh, over 2 million acres to the public lands. He also had a plan for old age assistance and unemployment compensation, which again, never got beyond the drawing board. And he also had a plan for the reorganization of the executive department, which again, never got out of Congress, but he'd get to implement under Truman and Eisenhower. Most of his time though was dealing with the problems of the Great Depression, which kind of seemed to be endless problems, not only with the stock market crash, but then with European governments going off of the gold standard and doing the reparations payments and then the run on the banks. And as Hoover said, every time he seemed to have plugged some, a hole in the dam, five you know new leaks would sprout. And so it pretty much exhausted him after four years. Even for someone with his seamless, boundless energy and uh, an intellect. In 1928, he ran for president. Incumbent Republican Calvin Coolidge didn't seek re-election, and Hoover, as the popular household name and Secretary of Commerce, quickly became the frontrunner for Republicans. He ran against Democrat Al Smith from New York. Al Smith was an Irish and Italian Catholic, the first Catholic presidential nominee. He served four terms as the governor of New York, and while he didn't have a direct link to corruption, his links to Tammany Hall, which was the political machine of New York, tarnished his national reputation. Another issue for him was the anti-Catholic prejudice. This helped Hoover to win in a landslide. Even in the 1960s, 
when you have JFK running for president, his being a Roman Catholic was also a problem. There was this fear in 1960 that the Pope would be running the United States government. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, the Pope's going to be in charge of everything. Right. So anti-Catholic prejudice was a big deal. The economic prosperity of the last two Republican administrations, which Hoover had been a part of, helped him to win the vast majority of states, including New York, the state of his opponent. His campaign slogan was, who but Hoover and a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Compare that to Al Smith's, which are honestly pretty fantastic. I don't know how he lost with all for Al and Al for all, but what really does it for me is the slogan, make your wet dreams come true. Now, hold on, hold on. Get your get your minds out of the gutter. He was an anti-prohibitionist and he wanted it overturned. People who supported prohibition were known as dries and people who were against prohibition were known as wets. So make your so wet to be dreams cl- come so, true. So to be clear, he was a Catholic after was, all. Was, he was a was Catholic about, after all. So let's, let's keep about, that in mind. <laughs> it was all about the booze when we're talking about wet, just to be clear. Yes. Okay. But with a slogan like that, it makes you think people must have really hated Catholics. Hoover was sworn in as president by Chief Justice and former president William Howard Taft. In his inaugural address, Hoover began with discussing our progress as a nation. He would go on to discuss the need to reform and reorganize the judicial system and specifically touted the need to better enforce the 18th Amendment. Prohibition was a major issue of the campaign, hence Al Smith's I'll Make Your Wet Dreams Come True. He also supported higher education and he hoped to maintain peace throughout the world. You know, while we didn't join the League of Nations, we support newly independent nations and we wish for them to be able to maintain their independence. And towards the end of his speech, he says, and this is a direct quote, ours is a land rich in resources, stimulating in its glorious beauty, filled with millions of happy homes, blessed with comfort and opportunity. In no nation are the institutions of progress more advanced. In no nation are the fruits of accomplishment more secure. In no nation is the government more worthy of respect. No country is more loved by its people. I have an abiding faith in their capacity, integrity, and high purpose. I have no fears for the future of our country. It is bright with hope. He is describing the image of prosperity, prosperity that wouldn't last much longer. Okay, so for Herbert Hoover, he's certainly very vocal about his dislike of Roosevelt's New Deal programs. Or do you think he wished he had done more to directly help people? Maybe not in the way that Roosevelt was doing, because of course he disagreed with Roosevelt's methods. But do you think he thought he should have done things differently? Hoover lived by a philosophy, and it's not one that is shared by certainly modern historians and wasn't shared by Roosevelt's brain trust, the, his, his leading advisors. In 1932, Hoover gives a speech where he essentially talks about the choice that Americans have to make, and it's a philosophical divide. Hoover fundamentally believed the individuals should have that open field and fair chance. 
the more you let government make decisions that control your life, the more that individual creativity and expression is constrained. Hoover always believed in voluntary assistance, that individuals should learn how to be able to help themselves and then how to help their neighbors. And he believed, again, that things should start at the lowest level and work their way up with federal assistance being the means of last resort, not first resort. <laughs> and part of his opposition was that he saw in Europe and certainly in the Russian Revolution these huge bureaucracies that were created to govern control over people. They were tended to be corrupt, inefficient, loaded with patronage. And he saw the same thing with New Deal programs where millions of dollars went to large cities, often controlled by Democratic mayors, that was used to strengthen patronage rather than actually make its way to addressing human need. With Hoover, you know, it, it, it was the more you rely on government, the less you rely on your own abilities and on the creative abilities of your neighbors. And I think sometimes, you know, we see that in, in modern day instances where there is an unusual sub-zero front affecting major cities and mayors have to make pleas to have neighbors check on one another. But I think today, the assumption is I don't need to do that because, you know, there are government agencies that will do that. That was Hoover's complaint with the New Deal, that government was intervening in too many areas of everyday lives, arguing that it's to provide a safety net. You know, Hoover believed that government intervention needs to occur to address a need, but when the need is met, for government to get out. Again, one of his criticisms of the New Deal was that these government departments that were created to address a need never ended, that they found new ways to perpetuate their existence. And, and so, again, many people feel, uh, you know, the, what I often get is that, well, Hoover fed all of these people, these tens of millions of people abroad, and yet he wouldn't feed people at home, which isn't quite true. Hoover tried to meet the need at home through community trusts, American Red Cross, kind of, again, local and regional agencies. And when he did his public works outreach, 80% of public works under Hoover and Roosevelt were done at the state level. And, and local level. The federal government really only provided about 20%. And so these were things like infrastructure. And Hoover understood the importance of public works programs. The problem with public works programs is that very few are ready from the get-go. So when you give money, it will immediately provide jobs and that the project can, can begin tomorrow that they're shovel ready. 
um, there's lead time. And so even if you appropriate millions of dollars for a public work project, you know, it's often years before you actually see that ec economic benefit because there needs to be planning. And so, you know, typically public works projects are kind of have a long-term benefit, not only uh, in terms of economic benefit, but in, in the utility that they provide, whether it's a bridge or a road or a public building. You know, the depression was a problem, not of inflation, where scarce goods were higher priced. It was one of deflation. It's where there wasn't enough money circulating to buy the surplus of goods available. And that was a problem that not only Hoover faced, but that Roosevelt faced. The Roosevelt programs tended to give the appearance of meeting needs and creating jobs and solving the problem. But we call it the Great Depression because it begins typically with the dramatic crash of the stock market and goes all the way through the end of World War II. Roosevelt's great success was as an inspired leader during World War II and defeating the Axis powers. But his ability to deal with the Depression didn't produce really any better economic benefits than, than Hoover. And even his uh, advisors make the claim. I mean, Rexford Tugwell and Raymond Moley, two of the leading figures in the Brain Trust, indicated that many of their best ideas came from Hoover and Hoover's administration. I think the one thing that stifled both Hoover and Roosevelt is that, number one, they didn't want to spend the level of dollars that it would take because no one really knew how much money it would take to, to solve the problem. And they were worried about the deficits that they were creating and whether they were creating these problems, you know, this debt for future generations. The other thing that both Hoover and Roosevelt worried about was the disincentive to work. If the government was going to be providing the safety net and services, would people still have the desire when the crisis is over to take up more of the responsibilities for their own welfare and, yeah. you know, for that of their neighbors. And, and, you know, these, these are questions that we're still asking today, right? So on the one hand, Hoover clearly showed his opposition to the New Deal. On the other hand, you know, many of the, the things that, that Hoover and Roosevelt thought about and did also had some commonality to it. You know, for Hoover, does he ever mention anything about things like Hoovervilles or the things that, you know, the fact that all those th things were named after him, things like Hoover flags? Does he talk about that or write about that at all? Hoover was not a politician. The, the only elected office that he ever won, that he ever ran for and won, was president. Every other office he was appointed to. And so he grew up outside of the political parties and the rough and tumble of practical politics. Unlike Franklin Roosevelt, who grew up with Tammany Hall and having to deal with hard-knuckled politics in New York State. So Hoover avoided many of the things that are of necessity to a modern politician. He didn't like his picture taken. He didn't like to have children and people used as props in uh, photo ops. And uh, obviously, you know, Franklin Roosevelt loved that. Uh, he understood the the 
importance of images and projecting a president's persona and policies, uh, his fireside chats. Hoover's press secretary encouraged Hoover to do use radio more. And many of his advisors told him, you need to give kind of personal anecdotal stories so that people can relate to you. And being, again, the big data guy, he tended to, to talk in terms of uh, numbers, which I guess if you know, you're know you an actuary, you can understand, but general public can. And, and, and so Charles Mickelson was hired by the Democratic National Committee in 1928 to essentially provide weekly news sheets to newspapers criticizing the Hoover administration. And it was Charlie Mickelson that essentially came up with the Hoover Bill. Talk about the shanty towns they were growing up along the edges of cities. The Hoover Blanket was a newspaper that a homeless person used to cover themselves. A Hoover flag was turning your pockets inside out to show you didn't have any money. All of these uh, derogatory terms were coined and spread and became part of the popular culture. It's, it's unclear. I mean, homelessness existed before Hoover was president. Certainly, it increased with the onset of the Depression. It's never gone away. And Hoover refused to take on these criticisms. He felt that, again, people were interested in results, not in rhetoric. And there he didn't, he could have learned something from his favorite president, Abraham Lincoln, about rhetoric, because Lincoln had to convince voters why what seemed to be this endless war and all of these deaths, why it was necessary to maintain the fight and, and what the struggle was about. I think, again, Hoover didn't understand the power of language and of lyricism. He didn't have speechwriters. He wrote everything himself. Franklin Roosevelt had um, Pulitzer Prize winning writers, people like Robert Sherwood, that helped craft many of, of his public addresses. And so that bully pulpit that you know, Theodore Roosevelt talked about in terms of the presidency. I think Hoover mistakenly thought that it was simply a results, delivering results to the American people and didn't realize that, you know, part of it was also addressing their inmost needs and fears with consoling words. You know, for Hoover, he he certainly bears the weight of the blame for the Great Depression. And he bears the weight of the blame from politicians, members of his own party, members of the opposing political party, and also the average American citizen, I think, blamed him. And, you know, he after his one term as president is over, he doesn't, you know, fade into obscu uh, obscurity. His ability to get to the heart of the problem, his administrative prowess, future presidents kind of tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, we need your help. Can you talk about a little bit about his post-presidency and um, especially that trip to Europe for the 20th anniversary of the end of World War I? So, um, you know, what's interesting is that before Hoover 
becomes president, he is identified as, uh, and he identifies himself as a Theodore Roosevelt progressive Republican, which makes him the kind of conservatives in the Republican Party very suspicious of him. After he leaves office, he's identified as this reactionary critic of the New Deal, <laughs> anything but a, uh, a progressive. What is interesting is that, you know, because, again, he didn't grow up within the political system. He had lived most of his life abroad. When his name first comes up for president in 1920, they don't even know if he's a Republican or Democrat. And, 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 and so because he's not doesn't have a strong connection to the party organization, becomes this voice that expresses certain philosophical principles, the one, you know, being the open field and fair chance and kind of suspicious of government and kind of always advancing individual freedom and merit. He still continues, though, to support things to help people realize their own potential. So he becomes one of the biggest supporters and um, of the boys clubs in the 1930s because he sees that more and more of these children, and now it's boys and girls club, but are growing up, they may have like an absentee father and they don't have that adult supervision and mentorship. And that boys clubs provides that nurturing environment to help give them those skills, give them a safe place so they don't become part of a gang and kind of give them encouragement to, again, achieve their own potential. Lou is active in the Girl Scouts. Same thing. He also, when the war breaks out, again, tries to set up similar things for Poland and Finland, like he did in World War I with the Commission for Relief in Belgium. It's not so successful, but does provide, again, millions of dollars of aid to help the Poles and Finns before it's cut off. When he's in Europe, as you point out, uh, he is asked by the American ambassador in Germany if he would meet with Adolf Hitler. Hoover is not a fan of Hitler, but he agrees and he sits down. He indicates there are several different accounts that he wrote of his meeting that Hitler is not the clown that he's often made out to be in the American press, but rather very serious in his intentions, and his intentions are evil. Hoover knew Hitler was not a good force <laughs> for positive change in Germany. 1938, so this is very much ahead of the game here. Right. And, and then when, when Kristallnacht occurs, Hoover is one of the first American leaders to come out and condemn it. Yeah. Now, I, I, Hitler or Hoover is not blind to what's going on in Germany. And in fact, he also encourages Charles Lindbergh, as well as Truman Smith, who's the American military attache in Germany at that time, to go. And because Lindbergh is... Um, you know, still has the celebrity from his uh, transatlantic flight. The Germans essentially show him everything in terms of their aviation capabilities. He gets to 
tour aviation plants. You know, Goring takes him all around. He's given a medal, for which he's criticized for. But what Lindbergh does, because he understands the capabilities in aviation, he writes a very telling report, which is given to the Roosevelt administration, saying that the Germans are much farther advanced than we are with their capabilities. And Americans need to beware because of his vocal opposition to the administration and being part of the American first, his report is ignored. But again, you know, the confusion of, of, of opposing someone politically, but still being loyal to the country is <laughs> kind of lost on, on, on folks. Hoover realized, though, that as long as Roosevelt was president, his services would not be required. Bernard Baruch, who was one of the leading Democratic funders and had served with Hoover in the Wilson administration in World War I when Hoover was in charge of the Food Administration, kept telling Roosevelt, you know, the best person to deal with that would be Hoover. And Eleanor, for example, was interested in setting up a children's relief fund for Poland and Finland at the time that Hoover had his own Finnish and Polish relief organizations. But Roosevelt, who had kept using Hoover as the foil, Hoover was the problem, the New Deal was the answer, couldn't well reach out to Hoover. And he told Baruch, you know, I'm not Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to raise Hoover from the dead. Wow. It's only about Roosevelt dies uh, early into his fourth term. Truman takes over. Truman realizes the war is coming to an end, that after World War I, more people died from the influenza. Yes. And uh, Hoover understood this. Hoover understood that during war, people are on subsistence. Their immune systems are weakened because they're not getting enough food and not getting the right amount of food. They often kill cattle. And so the fat that they use to make soap, soap becomes in short supply as people, sanitation lowers, they become more susceptible to typhus, which is spread by gnats. And so after war, Things that normally people would be able to tolerate, diseases, become life-threatening. So Truman understands this, and he realizes that one of the few people that have had any experience with feeding people, millions of people, and providing medical relief and clothing was Hoover. So, you know, he reaches out and, you know, to this 71-year-old guy and says, you know, will you do a major survey of post-war needs. He's supplied with a cargo plane that's not pressurized and, you know, essentially goes to 38 countries and like 50 some days to do an assessment and, you know, gives that to Truman. That's given to George Marshall and, you know, parts of it are helped George Marshall with, you know, the Marshall Plan and, and feeding Europe. Truman also has to use Hoover several more times in Germany. Hoover is the only American that the Germans trust. The part of this is that after World War I, the British, the French, and even Woodrow Wilson wanted to punish the Germans beginning the war and didn't want to provide food. 
to post-war Germany. And Hoover argued that that was self-defeating, that it wasn't the German populace that made the decision to go to war. It was the German leaders. That's also the argument Hoover made in feeding the Russians during the Soviet famine of 21 to 23. And that is the people in Russia aren't at fault. You know, don't blame them for what their leadership does. You know, in that food crisis, he was feeding on the average 10 to 11 million people daily. Hoover has to make the argument that after World War II, the Germans desperately need more food. He's able to win that argument. Uh, and they set up, you know, again, these feeding kitchens and uh, what they call like the, the Hoover lunch. But all of these things, again, were based, predicated upon just all of the problems that come after a war, and as well as the threats. Uh, and so Hoover was able to, again, use the knowledge that he gained from feeding Belgium in World War I and then feeding Europe and Russia in the post-War War I years and apply it to post-World War II. You know, for Hoover, I think he's someone who is very good at seeing the bigger picture and being able to get to the root of the problem and figure it out. And I think, you know, his legacy is really undeserved. I don't think he deserves to be looked at solely through the lens of the Great Depression. I think that's a big component of his presidency. But <laughs> I don't think he deserves just to be known for that. For the Hoover Presidential Museum and Library, how do you discuss his legacy? When people come here, you know, most of that Great Depression generation is gone. Both sets of grandparents uh, that I got to know, I had the, the good fortune of knowing, both had fought in World War I. And my own father was served with an airman in World War II. And they were kids during the Depression. So I grew up hearing stories about both wars, the Depression. I thought that my grandparents' saving habits were because of the Depression. And then I realized that it really began with Hoover, with the Food Administration and Hooverizing and providing, voluntarily providing the essential food elements for the war effort by meatless Mondays and wheatless Wednesdays. I mean, every day of the week, kind of sacrificing something. And so when World War II came around, they, they already understood the importance of, of sacrifice to win the war effort. The, I think people coming through, though, don't have any of that experience. And, and, and what they discover is this guy who could have spent his life pursuing a very lucrative mining career and living a life of leisure and making a conscious decision to put that all up for grabs and kind of pursuing these uncharted waters. So setting up the Commission for Relief in Belgium, this today what we call an NGO, non-governmental organization, you know, that would feed civilian populations in an occupied country. And the other thing that Hoover, they see in Hoover, is like he's bringing on these young people and teaching them to serve becomes their mentor. After World War II, many of these people that Hoover mentored 
with the Commission for Relief in Belgium, had all of these uh, NGOs that are created, such as UNICEF. Wow. And the people, Maurice Pate, I mean, uh, they got a Nobel Peace Prize in 65. But these were people that, again, started out with Hoover and the Commission for Relief in Belgium, and then kind of take on in post-World War II to run these new organizations. But they see this guy and his humanitarian relief and, and figuring out how many people he has to feed and how much food he has coming. And then asking scientists, well, how many calories does it take to keep a person alive a day? So he knows how much, how many people he can feed with what he's got. And the proper amount of calories and they didn't talk about vitamins at the time they talked about nutrients but and the proper nutritional balance and also realizing that children are the most vulnerable then women then the elderly and making sure that they're taken care of first how to do this and that makes economic sense so with the commission for relief in belgium because Hoover served without a salary and all of the Americans that served under him served without a salary, he was able to keep administrative costs of the organization down to less than one half of 1%. So that all of that money, and he raised over a billion dollars, and this is in 1910 dollars, you know, for the feeding efforts, all, almost all of that went toward feeding efforts. You know, Hoover again, was an administrator. So he and the people that worked around him helped oversee a larger group of, of locals. So most of the feeding centers and the warehouses in Belgium uh, for the Commission for Relief in Belgium were run by Belgians. And the same thing happened in Russia during the famine and, uh, you know, in post-war. I mean, it, it was locals that were actually running these uh, hot lunch lunches at schools and the feeding centers. What Hoover did was simply to oversee to make sure that you know things weren't being taken and sold on the black market. That the relief was going to the people who needed it. Yeah, and I hope that's what people remember about Hoover and not just maybe what he failed to do and, and and also to consider the dangers of what happens when government overreaches. I I can't thank you enough for your time today, but thank you so much Tom. This was an excellent conversation. Thank you. And I hope if our listeners are ever in Iowa that you will go and see the Hoover Presidential Museum and Library for yourself. Herbert Hoover died at the age of 90 in New York City from colon cancer on October 20th, 1964. He had a state funeral and he lied in state in the rotunda of the Capitol building. In President Lyndon Johnson's announcement of Hoover's death, he stated the following, and this is a direct quote. Mr. Hoover's service to our country, spanning a period of nearly half a century, was marked by a signal honesty of purpose a devotion to fundamental principles of ethical conduct, and a deep concern for the welfare of all of his fellow man. Among the rich products of his efforts have been the advancement of the cause of peace, the strengthening of our bonds with other nations, the enrichment of the lives of millions of human beings around the world, and a vital improvement of the operation of this government. His patriotism, 
knew no partisanship. In a 1964 New York Times article announcing Hoover's death, it stated, some later judgments, however, have suggested that he was the victim of events that coincided with his tenure and 30 years of public service, including tasks for two presidents after he left the White House, restored him in the affections of millions. And I think that has been forgotten by most people. I think people just simply learn about Herbert Hoover through the lens of the Depression. And that's all he's really known for, this president who people, some historians seem to call a failure. And there's so much more to him. Hoover lied in state at St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church in New York City and was then brought to Washington, D.C. for the state funeral. Herbert Hoover chose his own burial plot in Iowa, overlooking the small two-bedroom home of his birth. A man from humble beginnings, amassed a wealth most dream of, traveled the world. He was elected president of the United States, and he chose the view of his childhood home for his final resting place. Not that I blame him. There are a few places that evoke a feeling of peace and happy memories as your childhood home. I think it's fitting for Hoover himself to close out this episode. Hoover once said, I have had every honor to which a man could aspire. There is no place on the whole earth except here in America where all sons of man have this chance in life. Here alone is human dignity, not a dream, but an accomplishment. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.